Um, Lord, I just lift this time up to you, and I just pray that you would bless us, and I pray that you would, um, that this time would be glorifying to you, and I pray that I can get through all the material I need to in the time, and that um, people can ask me the right questions to make sure that things are clear. And I just thank you that you have not left us without witness and without evidence. Um, so we, ha- we can have faith, but we can also have good reasons to believe. And as we share our faith, we can have confidence and assurance in what we share. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's go on uh, cleanup duty from last week. So um, when I taught, for example, the Kalam cosmological argument, I started it by saying, look, I don't know much about cosmology. I can just repeat what's in the book. And sometimes it's easier to teach something that you don't know a whole lot about because you're just like, this is what the book says, boom. Uh, When it gets to the New Testament and first century Israel, and um, I know tons about that, way too much. And so that's why last week it was just like way too much information. Um, So what I should have done, what I did for the Old Testament class, and then what I think I'll do every time I have a class that's too big, is I created a little cheat sheet here. Um, so there's, you have two. One is called the sum- Summary New Testament Reliability, and one is called Summary um, Historical Jesus. Uh, so grab the Summary uh, New Testament uh, Reliability. Uh, sorry, online people, I forgot to get you notes this time around, uh, but they'll be posted to my blog later on. Okay, so um, this is what you need to know about the New Testament. This is what I was trying to communicate. Uh, there was lots of information coming your way, but basically, Question one, was the New Testament transmitted reliably? Yes, through archaeology and a discipline known as text criticism, we're able to see that the New Testament was transmitted through the years with an accuracy greater than around 95%. Is the New Testament lost forever? What about that last 5%? What are we going to do about that 5%? No, through text criticism, we can reconstruct with an accuracy greater than 99% the remaining differences, um, the New Testament. And remaining differences do not affect doctrine, but usually are variances in spelling and the like. Uh, and just go ahead and check your Bible footnotes. Um, I've got a Bible here, and there's often footnotes, and it's just telling you variant um, spellings, variant texts, say, um, say it slightly differently, and there's usually two options. It could be either this or it could be that. You can look at the text and you say, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the meaning either way, but it just gives you a richer... Um, uh, view of, of what the text actually was in most cases. Um, we can have complete confidence that the Bible we have today is the same as what was written by the original authors. So um, I tried, so we had two hats last week. We talked about the secular academic perspective and we talked about the conservative Christian perspective. And it was difficult to jump back and forth, but basically what I'm saying is if we're looking at it from a secular academic perspective, it gets it passes with flying colors, the Bible. Um, there are no other ancient documents that pass with 99, that we have reconstructed with an accuracy of like 99.5%. It just doesn't exist. There aren't documents that have so many manuscripts that we can reconstruct them to this level. Um, when we jump over to the conservative perspective, we say, well, how do we not have 100%? And that just comes from the fact that we're looking at things differently. So if, if, I, if you ask me, um, am I friends with Mary, I would say yes. And you might say, well, how much do you like her? <laughs> and I would say, I don't know. You know, we're good friends, right? Um, if you ask, what's her grade in class? I don't know yet, but I might, she's not going to get 100% because nobody's going to get 100%, right? 
If she get, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Uh, it's unlikely uh, that anybody's going to get 100%. Um, because, and you know, when you're looking at things critically evaluating, 95% is perfect. There's nothing better than, than that, or 99% is, you know, even better than perfect. Um, and so don't be knocked off guard by this whole 1% of, of uh, variance. And that doesn't cause problems for people looking at it from a historically reliable perspective. What it does cause some problems is what do we do with inerrancy and how do we call the Bible perfect? Well, you know, we look in the footnotes and it could be this, it could be that. So if you want to wrestle with that, I've got some podcasts on inerrancy. Also, you can just look at the document, uh, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy online, the Chicago Statement. And it, we have, uh, evangelicals have a nuanced and um, a... Yeah, just a nuanced perspective of what inerrancy actually means. The original documents are inerrant. The Bible that we have is inerrant to the degree that it represents the original documents. Um, so let's not spend all of our time on that because um, we have lost talk about Jesus. When were the first documents written? Jesus died between AD 30 and 36. Likely he died AD 33. Paul wrote between 45 and 67. And of course his sources came before him. Mark was written... Uh, somewhere between 60 and 70, and of course Mark's sources came before him. Matthew and Mark were written between 70 and 80, and John was written lo no later than 80, 90. Why do we know that John was written no later than 80, 90? Um, for a lot of reasons, one of which is that he starts to get quoted by a lot of um, a lot of the church fathers, and so he couldn't have been quoted if he hadn't been written yet. But also we have this document here, which is called the John Rylands Fragment. We have all sorts of fragments uh, from the New Testament which is from which we can reconstruct um, what the Bible actually said and, and have a very high degree of accuracy. The John Rylands fragment is the oldest one to date. Uh, they're still doing research. They thought they had found another one uh, last year. I haven't heard more about that. They thought they had a scrap from Mark from a burial mask. But as far as I know, this is the, the oldest established document, and it comes from around AD 125. And so if you think about... And it was discovered in Egypt, and so John was likely not written in Egypt. It was likely written in Palestine or somewhere else. Um, if you th can think about how long it would take for a book to be written and then disseminated around the Roman Empire and then thrown in a garbage heap and then discovered, well, the discovery isn't part of that, but to be thrown in the garbage heap, it, it's not as though it could have been written two years before. We would imagine that there was some time that it was circulating before it was, it was discarded. Um, and so this kind of puts a bit of a cap on the New Testament, that if it was discovered, if it dates from 125, at the latest, John was written around AD 90, maybe 95. Some would push it all the way up to 100 AD, but that's, that's about as far as it'll go. And that's important because John is the last gospel to have been written. And it's, it's clear as you're reading John, you don't have to be really an expert to know that John is um, interacting with and kind of being like, okay, the others have written and here's like my contribution. And he's kind of interacting with the material and kind of adding to it a little bit, uh, adding his side of the story. And so it's clear that he comes after the other ones. And so he kind of pushes the others back. Um, but also because in Mark, there's no mention of uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, there's no mention in, in any of the Gospels of the destruction of Jerusalem, which you would think would have come up uh, because it was kind of a big deal. Um, Moving on, were the Gnostic Gospels written before the New Testament? No, they were written after. 
Most agree they were all second century documents and many are from the third and fourth century. Um, did the early church choose the canonical gospels or why did they choose them? Um, so this we're going to come back to today. So this is important for you just to note. Um, the early church uh, chose the canonical gospels, the one Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because uh, they were universally used. Everybody in the church used the gospels as well as Paul. Uh, so this is an important point I should have mentioned last week. Yes, the, the process of deciding what belonged in the canon it was a long process, but the church always had the four Gospels in Paul. Those were never disputed. The dispute was, what else do we add to these? And there were some, such as Roman, or such as Revelations, and such as Jude and Hebrews, that for various reasons, the church was a little bit reticent to add. They, we, Re Revelations is just a weird book, right? And then Hebrews doesn't have an author, uh, and Jude is, is really short, and there's just, just issues with some of these books. And then there were some, as we're going to talk about later, that almost made the cut, but not quite. Uh, and, and so for a while, they, they were in, but then they weren't. So universality was, um, be, because the whole church community was using these books, and we all have our ties back to the first apostles, the assumption is that if everybody's using it, then it must have come from the first apostles. Whereas books that just popped up here, there, and everywhere... We would say, well, okay, only in Alexandria did they have that book. Nobody's heard about it in Rome. Nobody's heard about it over in Syria. It was probably invented somewhere in uh, Alexandria. Authorship. So books were written by apostles or by people that, um, that the apostles um, authorized to write. Uh, orthodoxy, whether or not the books agreed with the Old Testament scriptures and with the Gospels and Paul, so established theology. Um, has secular, academic, or liberal scholarship overturned the early church's decisions on the canon? So now that we know so much more and we've researched this era, would we change anything that the early church did? Basically, no. Uh, mainstream secular academia has verified the text of the New Testament are the earliest documents and the best information for the historical Jesus. So we're going to talk about the Gnostic Gospels in a second here. When they first came on the scene, there was a lot of excitement and a lot of thinking that maybe these documents will shed new light on Jesus. Um, but they were sh shown to be later documents that are derivative of the New Testament, that are interacting with the New Testament, that are, are saying, okay, everybody believes this, but I'm telling you this. So there couldn't be that sort of interaction if they came before the Gospels. And so most people would say, no, this, is, this comes later. This is not... Uh, it, important for Jesus studies. Okay, are there understanding type questions for this sheet or is it clear? Clear enough? Okay, um, let's move on to talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the historical Jesus. So um, I did mention I want to, uh, okay, what are we going to do here? Yeah, I want to interact a little bit with um, the Da Vinci Code. And I said I was going to talk about this last week. Um, this is just a good way to cap off our discussion from last week. The Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. My dear, the Bible is the product of man, not of God. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Um, this is from Dan Brown. This is the sort of ideas that circulate out there in culture. It's not just Dan Brown that's responsible for this. But this line here, history has <coughs> never had a definitive version of the book. We have a definitive version of the New Testament. 
It's been reestablished by historical critical methods. Everybody agrees that what we have in front of us, unless you want to nitpick about the variances where it could be this, it could be that, there's slight you know, grammatical differences. Unless you want to nitpick about that, um, we have the definitive version of the New Testament. And the Old Testament has been rediscovered in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those texts literally date to the time of Jesus, or as much as three or 408 BC. Um, and the community was annihilated in, at 70 AD, and so it couldn't have been later than that. And so we have, we have the Bible of, of the first century. Uh, we have a definitive version of the book. Um, okay, so let's talk about, now that we have that dealt with, let's talk about Jesus. So um, starting from the, after the, the Enlightenment, which was in the uh, 1700s, in the 1800s, People started studying Jesus from a more um, academic perspective and saying, what, did, what actually happened with Jesus? Who is Jesus actually? And the first couple of attempts, this is the first quest for the historical Jesus on page two of your notes, um, basically just kind of compiled the four gospels and uh, put things in, in order and said, well, this is basically the life of Jesus. Uh, kind of a um, synchronism of the accounts, or, or what's it called? Um, as the, as the, um, the, the quest, so to speak, kind of, kind of took form and kind of took direction, um, there was a guy, actually, sorry, I, I need to back up just, just one tick here before I talk about the historical Jesus, let's talk about conspiracy theory. Um, because the Da Vinci Code and there's a, an internet movie called Zeitgeist, which you may or may not have seen. It's kind of old already. Um, but there's people that'll, go, that'll say there's a conspiracy out there to hide, you know, the real truth about the New Testament, the real truth about Jesus. And I'm going to tell you the truth, you know. Um, whenever there's a conspiracy theory, uh, whether it's, you know, somebody on drugs often, or, or, or somebody that's a little bit unbalanced or, or somebody that's seriously presenting it, we need to be very cautious of somebody that says, everybody in the world is wrong, but I have secret knowledge and I am right. Okay, so this is a co combination of an ad hominem attack against everybody. Everybody is wrong, it's called ad hominem. I mean, to say that somebody is wrong just because they're, they're wrong, that's ad hominem. And then appeal to authority, I have secret knowledge. Only I have the truth. And oftentimes in a conspiracy theory, because the everybody is wrong is so convincing, um, the, the, the thinking is you're not actually going to ask me what my proof is. And often a conspiracy theory has very little actual real proof. Um, and it's usually quite ad hoc as well. Um, you, you can kind of prove, you can disprove any evidence to just say, well, that's, that's what they want you to believe. That's what they want you to believe. And they become quite bizarre at times. Um, and so we need to identify conspiracy theories and say, well, um, we need to take them with a, a large grain of salt, so to speak. On, uh, when we get to Jesus and the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, um, as we talked about last week, there are academics that study this stuff. This isn't just the Christian community off in a corner in Bible schools that's studying Jesus. Uh, and something that I, you know, we've kind of been dancing around is... Um, liberalism, so to speak, or the secular academic perspective has been really difficult for me and for my faith. And it's been hard for me to be, because when I study the historical Jesus, I'm mostly reading non-Christians. 
And when I read evidence about the New Testament, I'm mostly reading non-Christians because most of the people in the field are not Christians. And, and somebody asked last week, why would somebody that isn't a Christian want to study Jesus? Well, he's the most important person in human history. Of course, people want to study him. He's arguably the most interesting person in human history as well. Um, and so there's tons of people that are studying Jesus. Who, who was this guy that are not Christians? And so this, to me, like when I, when I see the Da Vinci Code and people that are trying to say, oh, there's a conspiracy, the Catholic Church is kind of trying to control everything, I'm just like, I wish. I, part of me wishes that the church had control over these crazy liberals um, because it would be easier. It, it would be easier. Um, but it's simply not the case. There are people that, that study this sort of stuff. And so, um, and, and then the question is, how do we, do, how do we wrestle with what non-Christian people say about Jesus, and they have, secu- they have solid academic information about him uh, that we want to use, but how do we use that without, without losing our faith, which is what I tried to address last week. Um, so let's move into what, do, what does the secular academic community say about Jesus? And they've been studying him for over two, over two centuries now, and uh, they've gone through three specific quests there have been three eras of study, and obviously, again, I know too much about this field, and so I need to try and, and zoom through it quickly so that we can get on to uh, how do we workshop this out and what are the practical applications, um, which is actually a good reminder for me. I, I do need to go quickly through this. Uh, so the first quest was kind of this um, burgeoning attempt to understand Jesus. Who is this guy beyond just the Bible? Um, and... Uh, David Strauss, you don't need to know his name, but he um, wrote The Life of Jesus, and he started, he introduced the idea, let's reject the miracles in the Bible, and so let's add a naturalistic perspective to our pursuit. As the, as the, uh, the movement continued, people started distinguishing between the Jesus of history and the Jesus of dogma or of the church. As well, um, Okay, so, so the main two things in the first, it, the first movement is a rejection of miracles and a division between the Jesus of history and the Jesus of the church. Um, Albert Schweitzer, Schweitzer, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, in 1906 uh, published a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus in which he surveyed the last century or so of, of people writing about Jesus, people trying to understand who Jesus was. Um, and he coined the term The Quest for the Historical Jesus and he amazing guy just summarized all these, you know, a couple hundred books that had been written. And he offered a withering critique of the quest. And he said, basically, these people are doing nothing more than, um, the, the Jesus that they discover is nothing more than a pale reflection of themselves. Um, Mark Powell, uh, I think he's a, a contemporary guy, said that in this first quest especially, most people uh, imposed a grand scheme over Jesus' life, so Jesus was this. He was a, uh, a nice guy. He was a reformer. He was a Jewish zealot or whatever. And then they excluded the parts of the gospel that didn't fit. And then they added new information to make their, their, their ideas work. Um, and this is how they ended up basically just saying, well, Jesus is kind of like me or Jesus is kind of like one of my heroes. So it, because they were rejecting basically whatever they wanted from the gospels, it just became a, a, a discipline, so to speak, that, that just had no control and that didn't really have any um, academic bearing. 
Uh, Augustine wrote uh, centuries before in the fourth century, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospels you believe, but yourself. Uh, which is, I think, a fitting critique of the first, um, the first quest for the historical Jesus. So after Albert Schweitzer, there was a period of almost 50, oh, yeah, almost 50 years where people just stopped writing this sort of book. And people decided it's, it's impossible to actually discover the historical Jesus. Uh, all that we can know is the Jesus of the church, the Jesus of dogma. Um, and so there, and we, could, we just have to be agnostic about who this actual guy was. I forgot to mention in the first quest, um, there was also the idea that perhaps Jesus never even existed and perhaps he was a myth. So those are also from the first quest. Sorry about that. So then in 1953, um, Kassmann, Ernst Kassmann, I don't know how to pronounce German names, I do apologize, um, delivered an address in which he said, look, we can... It's true that the historical Jesus, the guy that actually existed, is lost to us. And the Jesus of dogma is all that we have. But there's theological memories of the historical Jesus. Here's us. So we can look through the Jesus of dogma and we can learn at least something about the Jesus of history, which makes sense. Uh, it's unlikely that this person that everybody's talking about, that there was no, there was nothing behind this Jesus of dogma. Uh, it, it seems likely, at least even if we're thinking of it from a secular perspective, it seems likely there's somebody back here that's being described by the church. And there'd be some sort of things that we can know about him. And so he, pro he um, proposed several uh, criteria for uh, discovering certain facts about Jesus. Um, dissimilarity, embarrassment, And then others mentioned multiple multiple attestations. So during the second quest, starting in the 50s and then going into the 60s and 70s, people, especially in Germany, started reawakening this quest for the historical Jesus and saying, okay, if stuff is dissimilar from later Christian ideas and dissimilar from earlier Jewish ideas it's likely to have been true. This is likely what the historical Jesus actually said. Things like, um, well, like Jesus being baptized uh, is, it's, it's dissimilar to later Christian belief because he's God, why would he need to be baptized? It's dissimilar to Jewish belief because they didn't really do that very often. Um, it's embarrassing. Again, the, the baptism is embarrassing. And so it's likely that later Christians would have invented it. Multiple attestation that the baptism is mentioned in all four Gospels, um, I believe. At least it's, it's multiply attested. Uh, and so when something is, is, or the crucifixion is mentioned in all the Gospels as well as most of the other New Testament sources. So that's multiply attested. That's something that's very well established and, and well known. Um, so then the third quest goes into the 1970s and the present. Um, the, quest, the second quest was mostly a German thing. Actually, the first quest was mostly a German thing as well. The third quest, it goes global, and there's new criteria added, such as historical plausibility, um, rejection and exclusion,
I'm just going to leave it with historical um, reliability. And then uh, congruence. Because nobody here is going to be tested on their methodologies for the historical Jesus. Um, but the idea is there's criteria that people are developing to, to figure out who this guy Jesus actually is. And after a bunch of criteria are developed and there's congruence, now that we've established certain facts about Jesus, um, does new information fit or not fit with what we already know about the historical Jesus? So then we can move into critical review of the his whole historical Jesus movement, 200 years or so of trying to find who the real Jesus is. Um, one thing that, we, that William Lane Craig brings up, especially about the criterion of embarrassment, but also of, of all the other criteria, is um, this can only be used positively. There isn't a way uh, that the, the criteria of embarrassment especially says Jesus was definitely baptized and he was definitely crucified. But it doesn't say that he didn't walk on water. It doesn't say that he didn't um, proclaim that he was God or something like that. It just says this, you know, certain facts are absolutely established. So it's only a positive method. There is no negative to it. Does that make sense to you? Um, now, that doesn't bother most secular uh, critics because they're saying anything that can't be established, I'm going to doubt. Right? Um, whereas as Christians, we're going to approach that and say, well, unless you can provide me with proof that this didn't happen, I'm going to approach it with the perspective of belief. So that's just a, that's just a difference in our starting point. Um, but these criteria are, can only be used positively. Uh, did Jesus, go ahead. It's the approach, I'm sorry. It's the approach that is, uh, that is not negative. It's the approach. Yeah, these, these criteria are not negative. They're only positive. And so it's going to depend. Um, well, the next point here is miracles. Miracles are still going to be the dividing line between the secular academic perspective and the, the conservative Christian perspective. And so if you approach it with the perspective that miracles didn't happen, any recorded events that are recorded as miracles must be fabricated. Um, and I'm going to be highly skeptical about any claims until they're proven to me. Then, sure, you're going to come up with a very minimalistic understanding of who Jesus was. Um, but if you approach it from the perspective, I got no problem with miracles, and I don't, have a, I don't feel the need to be super skeptical, um, and... You know, then all you're going to say is that certain things about Jesus absolutely definitely happened and they're proven historically. And then the rest of it, it hasn't been disproven. It's just, there, it's just a, a matter of faith. And there's no, there's no facts against the faith. This is the middle bucket that we talked about last week. There's nothing against the faith. It's just silent. Mm -hmm. the, silent the science is silent on a lot of Jesus' life. Um, Subjectivity is still a problem in the historical Jesus movement. John Dominic Crossan is uh, a famous historical Jesus critic um, who tends to be quite critical of the, the Christian perspective. And he said, many, Christ many Jesus scholars uh, write biographies when they're trying to write, or they write autobiographies when they're trying to write biographies. They're, it's the same issue that we had in the first quest, is that people try to write about what really happened, and they end up kind of reflecting themselves on their work. Um, we need to admit that this is, this is a continual problem with historical research. When you're trying to reconstruct the person that actually happened way back in history, he tends to look a lot like the author. 
And this isn't just with Jesus studies. This is with this is a continual problem with with the historical with any historical uh, examination. Okay, so that is the historical Jesus um, research. Um, I'm going to leave it there, except to say that there are certain things from all of this that we know absolutely for sure happened, such as the birth of Jesus and the death of, or the, the baptism of Jesus and the death of Jesus are two data points that are absolutely established. And then a lot of other points in Jesus' life are established with a high degree of certainty. And we'll get to those in a second. So are there any questions about the historical Jesus studies? Does that kind of make sense? Of course, there's tons more I could say. I could teach a whole class on that. Um, and I hate to, to gloss over 200 years of, of scholarship, but it's helpful that people divide it. People other than me have divided it into three quests and they can kind of understand it a bit. Okay, so um, let's move on to talk about um, some of the critiques you'll hear about Jesus. So sometimes you hear, and I couldn't find a good quote for this, but you'll hear the idea presented that Jesus never even existed. And that the whole idea of Jesus was just complete fabrication by the later church. Now, there is, now already as I say that, the later church, where did the church even come from if there wasn't Jesus? Um, so this idea was presented, it was kind of tabled in the, the first quest for the historical Jesus and it was um, disproven and abandoned because you have, we have more information for Jesus than we have for most historical figures from his time. Um, N.T. Wright, I couldn't find his quote, but I've heard him say that there is more evidence that Jesus died on a cross, or as much evidence, than that, um, who was it that crossed the Rubicon? Was that Caesar? No, that was um, Constantine. There's as much evidence that Constantine crossed the Rubicon as there is that Jesus died on a Roman cross. Um, there is multiple attestation. There is, um, it's embarrassing. It's, um, it's dissimilar from what comes before, what comes after. There is tons of evidence, at least for the fact that Jesus died on the Roman cross. We're going to get to those sources in a second. So nobody seriously doubts that Jesus existed as well. I mean, half of the world um, not half the world. What is, I think, uh, a third of the global population is Christian. Is that right? didn't have that statistic off the top of my tongue. Um, billions of people worship Jesus. Uh, and the Christian church originated. Why did it originate? What was the X at the beginning of the, the history of the Christian church? It's, it's just silly to say, well, the Christians invented Jesus. Well, who invented the Christians? <laughs> um, and so nobody seriously believes that Jesus existed. No Jesus scholar believes this. Um, there are, there are people called Jesus mythicists out there, um, but they're not considered part of mainstream, ac mainstream academia. And again, the picture I had on, on the wall from, uh, last week that referenced, uh, the McLean's magazine article, mm -hmm. did Jesus really exist? Mm -hmm. Um, the reason that really irked me, not just as a Christian, but because I know something about the academic, academic feel on this. I mean, if they said, we've discovered that Jesus is really a cynic. Okay, that's a serious academic perspective, that Jesus was a Greek cynic. If they said, we've discovered that Jesus is really just a rabbi, okay, that's a serious academic perspective. To say that Jesus never existed is just embarrassing. And a lot of people online, I went to do a critique of McLean's article, and there were just tons of critiques that were better than mine. But basically, people were saying, this is just embarrassing. You've, you've degraded yourself, McLean's. By, saying, by implying that Jesus didn't exist because nobody believes this anymore. 
Um, it's, a, it's a relic of the first quest for the historical Jesus. Um, there's just so much information and so much proof for the historical Jesus, and we'll get to that in a second. So something you'll hear far more often is Jesus is just a myth. Um, yeah, sure, there was a real guy, but uh, by the time the New Testament was written, all these myths had started circulating about him, and nobody could discern between the truth and the facts anymore. So you hear this pretty often, and this is actually a more of an academic perspective. But uh, Jesus... Get to get my notes here so I'm looking at the same thing as you. Third quest, critical review. Man, I have a lot of stuff on the historical Jesus. Um, okay, so there's no fill in the blanks for you guys here. Um, or is there? Do you guys have fill in the blanks for that part? No. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm flipping the wrong part. Um, Jesus, so the, the, the documents follow on the life of Jesus so close that it's really difficult to see how, they could, how this could have been a myth. Jesus died in AD 30 to 36, so likely um, it was AD 33. Paul's sources date to, um, so last week we talked about Galatians, and we talked about 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 11, things I've, I've passed on to you as the first importance of things I also received. So in Galatians 1.18, Paul talks about his meeting with the apostles, at Jerusalem, and he talks about how we're preaching the same gospel that they are, and they extended the right hand of fellowship to, to me. So this meeting likely took place at around AD 40, around seven years after the death of Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians, he shares, this is the gospel that I received. And so many draw a connection between 1 Corinthians 15 and, and the earlier mention in Galatians that he received the gospel from the apostles. But either way, Paul wrote Galatians in AD 48, and Galatians is extremely clear that Jesus is the Christ, mm -hmm. what the salvation message is, what the true gospel is, and if anybody preaches another gospel, may he be anathema. Um, so it's just amazing to me that Galatians, I mean, that's the book that started the, the Protestant Reformation. That is the book that we go to, to what is the gospel actually? What, what divides between legalism and the, the essence and the heart of Christianity is Galatians. And nobody debates that it was written in AD 48. Perhaps you could slide it around a few years. But this isn't one of the debated books. So liberals and conservatives, everybody agrees that Paul wrote the book of Galatians, and he wrote it around the, the year AD 48, which again, if I'm good at math, is 15 years after the death of Christ, death and resurrection of Christ. 15 years. This is, this is unheard of in ancient historiography. Usually historians you know, wait 100, 200 years after the fact, and then the person has become celebrated enough that they write a history, at least 50 years or something like that. 14 years after the death, 15 years, sorry, of Jesus, Paul's writing the book of Galatians. That's 9-11. That's 9-11. Yeah. So it's really helpful to think about what happened 15 years ago for us. Is it already been 15 years since 9-11? Is that possible? Keep feeling old with all this. I think we could find a few witnesses to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have to be a witness. <laughs> yeah. Um, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in uh, AD 55. Again, not a disputed book. Liberals and conservatives agree that Paul wrote that. Um, and AD 55, if I'm good at math, which I'm not, is 22 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, Paul finished writing in AD 76 because he got himself dead. And then uh, Mark sources... <laughs> 
likely came before AD 45, and then Mark started writing somewhere between AD 55 and 70. He likely wrote before the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, the rest, Matthew and Luke wrote between 60 and 80, and then John wrote somewhere between 85 and 95. Um, and so we have, let's take, oh shoot. Okay, anyways, we have all these sources from within, uh, like John is the last one at the, at the limit, writing 95 AD. So what is 95 minus 33 is 62 years after the death of Christ. That is, what happened 62 years ago? 60 years ago. <laughs> you were born. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> thanks, for thanks for sharing. <laughs> Um, it would be great to have examples ready, but if you can think about something that happened 60 years ago, we can still have fairly accurate information about that. Um, but certainly most of the documents go much earlier than that. Um, there is a natural resistance to the development of myths while the real historical person is alive. And what's really remarkable about the Christian story is that it originated in Jerusalem, where Jesus had just... Um, just presented himself and where he was known and where Jesus died. And then a very short amount of time later, all of a sudden there's this strong movement in Jerusalem, originating in Jerusalem and radiating it from there, that he is risen. Um, and so it's very unlikely that myths would develop uh, so soon after the real person was alive. Um, yeah, there are plenty of witnesses. Um, I mean, that happens here in Lennoxville. I don't think we're there. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, imagine. Just think of. Yeah, like something like that happens. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, you, would, you know, you, you look at, I just look at point 10 where it says, think of events that happened in the mid 80s, right? And I was born in the mid 80s. And I can, like, search to find out what song was the most popular at that time, right? The insignificant details you can still no, find out. So back there, I remember the 80s. <laughs> I was a witness to it. It actually happened. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. But to go back to then, like, okay, they didn't have internet, but there were, like, oral stuff. Yeah. yeah. They were all part of that. Like, yeah. It was, yeah. You don't for a culture, a community doesn't forget things that happened 20 years ago, 40 yeah. years ago. No, not, not huge like that. Not huge, yeah. no. Um, let's, Yeah. So, also you will hear uh, ideas that Jesus is just a, a myth. Yeah, so we're still on this. So, um, a myth is an actual genre. Th there is such a thing as ancient myth. And the New Testament doesn't look like ancient myth. And, and uh, C.S. Lewis had a great quote on this that I could not find uh, that really frustrates me. Um, but people that study myth, like the... Um, you know, the myths about Zeus and, and Hercules and things like this. And, and C.S. Lewis just happened to be a scholar of antiquity, and, and he, he taught at Oxford, and he, he knew what a myth was. And he looked at the New Testament, and he said, this isn't a myth. It doesn't look like a myth. It doesn't smell like a myth. Um, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a myth. Um, because it claims to be real history. Real myths don't claim to be real history. Um, sometimes they do. This happened a long time ago, la, la, la. Um, but they don't contain innumerable, historically ver verifiable anchor points. It's usually the land far, far away, uh, a long time ago when the earth was blue, something like that. 
Um, whereas the New Testament repeatedly says this happened in such and such a year at such and such a place when so-and-so was, um, let me just read something here for you. Luke. That would just be poor writing. To what? If you were trying to write the Bible as a myth, yeah. myth novel. Yeah. Do you want me to read you that C.S. Lewis quote? Yes. yes. Are you the one that had it? Looking at the Gospels, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Either this is historical reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern realistic novelistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. <laughs> and where is that from? That's from Fern, Seed, and Elephants, which was a lecture he gave. Fern, Seeds, Fern, Seed, and Elephants. Okay, by C.S. Lewis. That's great. Um, yeah, so... I guess what he's saying, and I actually didn't know that, is that nowadays we write novels that are pretend to be real, but are not. Mm -hmm. and, but in the ancient days, you wouldn't do that. You would either write a myth or you would write yeah. historical reality. Um, so Luke 3, 1 says, Now in the 50th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was te tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria, mm -hmm. And Tretonius and Lysanias with Tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So could he be any more precise? Um, of course, they, didn't have, they couldn't just say, you know, in the, in the year of our Lord 32 or whatever, because there wasn't a universally agreed upon dating system. So he had to grab historical, um, like... Um, that data points, you know, this person's this person's reign, this person's high priesthood, and things like this, and he he makes it as accurate as he possibly can, with all of these different references, and he kind of grabs everybody. The Jews tended to, to measure time by the high priesthood, and others tended to, to measure it by you know who was the the governor or who was the Roman uh, authority, and he makes it very very clear. This is something that happened in real time in real history. Um, as well, it claims to be real history. Again, we can back up to Luke 1. 1, in as much as, and this is written in flowing, um, rich, uh, aristocratic Greek, the first couple of verses, and then he, he drops down to normal Greek. But for the first bit, for the introduction, he writes in a very polished style, and he says, in as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So you can kind of tell it's a little bit wordy even as I read it in English. Um, what he is doing, is he's copying an introduction. Um, who is the guy that... Um, Doctors take the what oath? Starts with an H. Hippocratic. Hippocratic. So Hippocrates wrote the textbook on medicine way back when. And he starts it in as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of medicine. Um, I, I too have uh, seen it fit to write a book about medicine. And so this is his way of saying, look, there were people before me. I've read all their stuff and I'm writing the new textbook on medicine. 
And Luke isn't dismissive of, of what comes before, but he's taking this, this formal introduction to say, I'm writing a really high-quality book here about what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And again, his emphasis is, so that I'm writing them in consecutive order so that you may have exact truth about the things you have been taught. This is real information I'm giving you. And this is, you know, because of that introduction, what he's signaling is this is a professional work. This isn't some, some you know, novel or something like that. Um, and again, in the ancient time, it was ex extremely expensive to write, which is why he's mentioning his sponsor. His sponsor is giving him a lot of money just to get, have the materials to write. Uh, so people didn't write frivolous works nearly as much back then. I don't know that they did write fr frivolous works back then because it just was so expensive. But, um, and, and there, there's other references here that I mentioned where uh, people are making it very clear. They're talking about real history, things that actually happened. Uh, these are not just myths or, or things that happen in some imaginary time or imaginary place. Um, but aren't these stories about Jesus just a repetition of stories that you might have encountered in the Greek legends? Who here read some of the Greek legends in high school? No? Am I the only one? I used to love the Greek legends. They, they were a lot of fun. I read all of, I think, the Odyssey or the, Hol or, uh, the Iliad. I forget which one. But anyways... So you'll see this sort of thing floating around the internet sometimes. Um, so in Egypt at 3000 BC, we had Horus, who was born on December 25th. He was born of a virgin. He had a star in the east. He was adorned by three kings. He was a teacher at 12. He was baptized and began his ministry at 30, and he had 12 disciples. <gasps> Look at the similarities. <laughs> Attis was in Greece, 1200 BC. He was born of a virgin, born on December 25th, crucified, dead for three days, resurrected. Um, BS. Anyways, moving on to Mith Mithra, who was uh, in Persia, 1200 BC, born of a virgin, born on December 25th, 12 disciples, performed miracles, dead for three days, resurrected. Krishna in India, uh, 900 BC, born of a virgin, star in the east, performed miracles, resurrected. Um, in Greece, Dionysius, born of a virgin, born on December 25th, performed miracles, king of kings, Alpha and Omega, resurrected. And then Jesus, what do you know? He's born of a virgin, born on December 25th. Star in the East, 12 disciples performed miracles, dead for three days and resurrected. So this is just a repetition of stuff that's been going on for, for centuries. Which one of these things is not like the other? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there was an internet phenomenon called Zeitgeist that, that went around and that repeated this sort of thing. 90% um, of this stuff is complete BS. It is completely fabricated, okay? Um, which is why I couldn't help myself when I... Crucified, dead for three days, resurrected, Addis. It's simply not true. Um, what the, part of it is the truth? The actual <clears throat> myth? The or myths are true. But, okay, so... Um, specifics. The specifics. And specifically, um, crucifixion and virgin birth are two things that don't happen outside of Christianity. Um, so this is, again, a, a relic of the first quest for the historical Jesus. So a lot of these... There's... The guy that wrote this book here, The End of Religion, Bruxy Cavey, um, he's done uh, an online video responding to this, and he goes in detail into each one of these things. I'm not going to go in detail into all of these things. Um, I'll just put his name up here, and you can research this. The video on YouTube? Yeah. Do you, do you know what the approximate time of it is? Uh, Zeitgeist. Oh, Zeitgeist. I think that's how you spell it. If not, Google will help me. Um, but uh, people are not born a virgin before, before Jesus. 
uh, people have sex with gods and then they get pregnant, but we're talking about a virgin birth. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will give birth. Uh, this doesn't happen. And so the virgin gave birth. Any of the Greek myths and stories about a woman, either it wasn't the woman that gave birth or else the woman was no longer a virgin when she gave birth because she had been inseminated by one of the Greek gods. Um, also, the gods do not die and rise from the dead. Um, I was going to read from William Lane Craig on this point. You know what? I'm just going to summarize it for you. Um, William Lane Craig on pages... Where are we in our notes here? Oh, I don't have it. Um, on page 247... To 249, you can read that in William Lane Craig, 247 to 249 in On Guard. Um, people in, in the ancient myths, they don't die and rise again. There are stories about um, gods being assumed up to heaven, so they didn't die, they just went up to heaven. Um, there are disappearance stories. So, um, for example, Apollonius of Tyna, Epidocles, they just vanished and, and they went to a higher plane apparently. Um, still others were seasonal symbols of crop cycles as vegetation dies and, and then it, it comes back to life again. And so these people, um, such as Tamas, Osiris, Odonis, they become part of this crop cycle. So they die and rise again every year. But that's very different from a god coming, dying and rising again one time in, in real history. And some are political expressions of emperor worship. But none of these is a parallel to the Jewish idea of the resurrection from the dead. And again, this is a bodily resurrection. So right away, as I mentioned, bodily resurrection. If you've been reading the New Testament a lot, you'll, you'll, that'll ring a bell that that's a really big deal in the New Testament. That if anybody does not say Jesus rose bodily from the dead, um, he is the Antichrist or something like that, it says in John. Sure, these gods die and then their spirit rises or they die and they become God of the underworld or they die and then they become, you know, the, the fall leaves and the spring grass and they somehow get sucked into the cycle of, of death and life. But the body doesn't come back and get reanimated. Um, th there isn't the bodily resurrection in, in these myths. And a lot of these other similarities are just simply imaginative and fabricated. Now, one thing that we can say is that some of the iconography, some of the art is borrowed from earlier times, but that's not important for us as Protestants. That might be potentially a problem for Catholics. I'm not even sure. But, I mean, art is going to borrow from earlier times. It's not a problem that some of the early pictures of Jesus looked like earlier Greek pictures. At least it's not a problem for me. Um, as well, um, something that's even more damning um, in a technical sense, not, I sound, feel like I'm swearing here, um, is that there's no causal connection between the Greek myths and Jesus' stories. Even if there was dying and rising again gods, um, there's no causal connection. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the Jews, of course, were aware of Greek influences. They were surrounded by them all the time, um, but they hated them. They, they established the Jewish culture, especially the time of Jesus, Second Temple Judaism, was violently and vehemently opposed to the influences of Greek culture. 
um, in, in a similar way to how um, radical Islam is radically opposed to the influences of the West and of Hollywood and of America. Um, during, uh, in the silent years between the Testaments, the Maccabees tells the story of how the Greeks tried to push their and impose their culture on the Jews and they had a revolt and they, they kicked the, the Greeks out briefly and established their own state. And this was formative, absolutely formative to Second Temple Judaism is we're going to do this again. We're going to kick the Romans out. But any time that the Romans set up like an eagle, the, the Jews had an issue with setting up images because the second commandment is do not set up any images uh, of any sort. So anytime the Romans set up an eagle, for example, in Jerusalem, there'd be a riot. People would die. Uh, soldiers would be killed and, and, and they would almost overthrow things and then it would settle down and then the emperor would get in trouble or the you know, pilot or whoever would get in trouble. For, why'd you have to set up the... Why'd you get these guys angry again? Uh, and the Romans were always kind of poking them and then the Jews would get angry. Um, and so it, it just is historically very silly to think, oh... Well, the reason that Jesus died and rose again is because they were so in awe of these Greek legends. Um, they, they hated the Greek legends. Mm -hmm. This was the enemy. This was an antithetical to their religion. It's like saying um, that John Wayne and the, the, the cowboy myth somehow influenced radical Islam. <laughs> I mean, that's the bad guy. That's, that's who we hate. That's, you know... There, there's not going to be a causal relationship here. Um, and uh, I'm not sure which quest this was a part of, but some, I think part of the second quest for the historical Jesus, sometime in the 19th century, there was the Jewish reclamation the Jewish reclamation of Jesus. So for centuries we have read the New Testament as Greeks because we are very influenced by Greek culture. And gradually we've started to understand that the Bible is a Jewish document and we need to understand the Jewish context and we need to understand that Jesus was a Jew, he was speaking to Jews, Paul was a Jew, he was speaking primarily to Jews. Um, and so when we read the New Testament through the lens of Greek myths, we're simply using the wrong, the wrong lenses, the wrong pair of spectacles. We need to read the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament. And we need to understand Jesus in the context of of, of the God of the Old Testament, of Yahweh. So, um, again, you can look at uh, Bruxy Cavey's video on uh, Zeitgeist for more information on this. But most of this stuff is just simply fabricated, although it makes a great meme. Um, anybody can make a meme if they're not interested in truth. Um, but most of this stuff is, is not true. So then let's talk about what's next on our notes. We're going to go to Da Vinci Code. Yeah, so let's give a summary, I think my remote has died, of uh, the Da Vinci Code, which, as I mentioned before, is, is one of, if not the most read book in the world these days. Um, the Bible is, is not included in these bestseller lists, and so it probably is more read than the Da Vinci Code even. Um, so let's give you a, a summary of uh, some of the ideas in the Da Vinci Code. Could you? I'll just like point at you when I want you to click, maybe. Just don't wiggle the wire as a way of... Okay, so at the beginning of the Da Vinci Code, although it's a fictional book, it starts with this line. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. And so it sets up the reader to believe that what I'm telling you is actually true. Oh my gosh. Go ahead. 
And so um, it st starts talking about, and a big part of, of this is the Council of Nicaea, which is a real council that actually happened in 325. And he says, at this gathering, many aspects of Christianity were debated, voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of the bishops, the administration of sacraments, and of course, the divinity of Jesus. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, simply a mortal. Oh. There's going to be a string in a row here. Uh, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal, not the Son of God. Right, Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially pronounced, proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Go ahead. Uh, but there was a problem. Because Constantine upgraded Jesus' status almost four centuries after Jesus' death, well, it was 300 years after, not four centuries, but anyways, thousands of documents already existed chronicling his life as a mortal man. Oh no, what are we going to do with these other documents? To rewrite the history books, Constantine knew he would need a bold stroke. From this spring, the most profound moment in, history, in Christian history. Uh, Teabing paused, eyeing Sophie. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. Go ahead. But some of the Gospels that Constantine attempted to eradicate managed to survive. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s, hidden in a cave near Qumran in the Judean desert. Go ahead. These are photocopies of the Nag Hammadi and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I mentioned earlier, Tebing said. The earliest Christian records, troublingly, they do not match up with the Gospels in the Bible. Okay, can you confirm it? Okay, so, oh no, this is the conspiracy. Uh, it's all Constantine's fault. Uh, Jesus was not God until the Council of Nicaea 325 when he became God, and then Constantine um, burned and buried all the documents that didn't agree with him. Um, believe it or not, I run into this, and people actually be believe this is true. Mm -hmm. uh, when I try and, well, I mean, I was at a Bible study a few, um, few months ago, and I tried to share, we were talking about, is Jesus the only way to God? And I started sharing about, from the New Testament. They said, well, hold on a second. Jesus only became God at the Council of Nicaea, 325. And the only reason you're reading from the New Testament is because those were the books that were selected at the Council of Nicaea. Um, so people actually believe this stuff. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about uh, some of the books that are not accepted in the canon. So there's at least three categories. Well, we're gonna, I was a little bit stuck for terminology because there's apocrypha and there's pseudepithographa. I'm not even pronouncing that right. How do you pronounce that? <laughs> Crazy big Greek word. Um, pseudepithographa. Pigrapha, pseudepigrapha. You do pronounce the P and S in Greek, pseudepigrapha. Um, so you have apocrypha and pseudepigrapha. They, they're basically synonyms, so I, I might have this wrong. They both mean basically the same thing. Um, but if we're looking at, at the development of the Bible, we have the Old Testament is written, um, we're going to say starting at around... I mean, writing was invented around 4,000 BC. Um, maybe I would put that. I don't. It's hard to determine a start date for the Old Testament. We'll, we'll just say 3,000 BC up to 400 BC. And then we have what's known as the silent years up to zero. There actually is no zero. It goes from minus one to plus one, but we'll just pretend there's a zero. Um, these are the silent years. 
So the, um, the Old Testament is written somewhere between 3000 and 400 BC. And then we have the silent years. So in the silent years, it wasn't actually silent. So this is the deportation to Babylon and back. And then after that, stuff that is written is put in a different category by the Jews. So this is where you have the Maccabees. This is where you have uh, Esdras. This is where you have Tobit. This is where you have other books like that. Okay, so this is called sometimes the Apocrypha. And Catholics will keep this in the Bible. Uh, Protestants will, will not. Although I would encourage you to read the Maccabees because it, it covers the history between these two. Uh, and it kind of bridges the gap to understand what actually happened. Uh, and then Jesus is um, born. He dies and rises again at 33 AD. And then the New Testament is written up to 90, uh, from, from around uh, 48 to 90 AD is the New Testament. And then we have um, two groups of documents coming out um, of the first century AD. And I'm going to call them Apocrypha, or Christian Apocrypha. What did I call them in your notes? Uh, and uh, Pseudepigrapha. Um, no, I'm on this set of notes. Yeah. So we have Old Testament Apocrypha. We have New Testament Apocrypha. So there were books that didn't quite make the cut. Uh, they were used almost universally throughout the church. Uh, they were very helpful. There, there's nothing wrong with them. I read them. I'm like, this is a good book. Um, but at the final, you know, a, a, as the process rolled along, they said, you know what? This probably wasn't, it was written in the first century or the second century, not the first century. It wasn't written by an apostle. Sorry, it doesn't make the cut. We'll still use it. It's still an important book. It's still a good book. So examples of this are the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, um, some writings, not Thomas, uh, some writings by... Um, uh, starts with a P. He was a disciple of John, uh, and I can't think of his name. Uh, so there were, there were various, you know, good Christian books that were written and that were used for a long time, but eventually just didn't make the cut. Then there were pseudepigrapha. Um, and these were books that claimed to be um, written by the apostles, but they weren't. So the Apocrypha was never claimed to be written by one of the apostles. Uh, one of the books... Um, the Shepherd of Hermas dealt with the question of what do we do with a Christian that sins? So John is very clear, if you sin, you're not a Christian. So this really freaked the early Christians out, like, you know, I just sinned, what do I do? Am I going to hell? Uh, and so the Shepherd of Hermas is this vision that, that uh, the shepherd has, and this angel explains to him that if you sin um, a little bit, that you'll be, be thrown away, but that not too far. Um, and, and God can take you and, and return you to the pile of stones. It's kind of a weird thing, but it, it helped early Christians understand, look, if you sin once after you're saved, you're not going to hell. Um, some theological difficulties as you go too far in that. Um, but then there were other people that said, I, I want to write a book for whatever reason, and they put Peter's name to it, or they put Luke or Mark's name to it as a secret letter. And so the most famous of this is the, um, the Gospel of Peter. Um, and this is a Christian guy, likely, that's trying to just make the whole story sound better. And so he just betterifies everything. And uh, William Lane Craig mentions this as a counterpart to Mark, because Mark is very simple, it's very straightforward, it doesn't have a lot of theological embellishments. Uh, the Gospel of Peter, which was written in the second century, um, okay, in the Gospel of Mark, nobody actually sees Jesus rise from the dead. It's kind of weird, right? In none of the canonical Gospels does anybody see Jesus rise from the dead. But in the Gospel of Peter, the author fixes this. 
So not only um, are the, did the woman show up when Jesus rose from the dead, but also all the members of the Sanhedrin are there, Pilate is there, and a whole bunch of uh, Roman guards, I forget how many, are all standing there. And then the, the stone rolls away, and Jesus comes out of the tomb, and, his head re or, and he's supported by two angels, and their heads rise up to the clouds. But um, the third person, Jesus, his, ri his head rises above the clouds. I don't even know how this is like possible. Um, geographically speaking. Uh, but, and then all the, the Jews weep because they realize they have crucified the Son of Man. And, and it's just all this, you know, embellishment to try and make Christianity look better. Uh, and so this was rejected by the early church and it's not, there's no attempt to try and push this back into the canon. It's clearly second century. It's clearly full of embellishments to try and make Christianity look better. And then you have a whole bunch of Gnostic Gospels. Um, and so Gnosticism is a movement that started likely in the second century. So the second century is after 100 AD. For some reason, they count centuries up to 200, which is, I don't know why they do that. It confused me for a long time. Um, so anything between 100 and 200 AD is the second century, okay? This is the first century. That's why sometimes I say in, in the 1900s instead of the 20th century because people understand more what I mean. Uh, but it, it's hard to say in the 90s without thinking or talking about the 1990s. Um, so Gnosticism, remember way back when we talked about Greek thought and how you know, God is up here and then there's like we're down here stuck in this evil world and there's like levels um, of, of spirituality in between us. This is Neoplatonism. This is later ideas of Plato or, or Plato's followers. Um, Neoplatonists were, were concerned with how do we ascend up through these levels of ascension to get to God? And how do we leave behind this body, this, this evil, aki body, um, to get up to God? And so the answer of the Gnostics was that it is through enlightenment, through having secret knowledge of some sort, that we're going to ascend, that we're going to leave behind this evil body, and we're going to ascend, just our mind, our spirit will ascend. And so there's this mind-body dualism, and there's the idea that there's secret knowledge. Gnosis is um, the, uh, the Greek word for knowledge. I guess it would be gnosis, because you pronounce the diphthongs, gnosis, from which we get the, the word gnostic. Um, it's similar, if you want contemporary references, it's a little bit similar to Buddhism in that you're trying to ascend and, and it's all about, you know, your spirit and your mind ascending and leaving your body behind. The world is illusory. The, the world is not real. Uh, it's also a little bit similar uh, to Scientology in that they have secret knowledge and if you pay us, we'll give you some of the secret knowledge, but you need to pay a little bit more to have a little bit more secret knowledge, um, which is why Scientology is a... I'd imagine Scientology pastors get paid better than Christian pastors. Yes. Um, and why movie stars are some of the people that go really far in Scientology because it costs money. I'm not sure if, the, if, if it was an issue of paying, but certainly there was secret knowledge that only the community would have. So these guys um, were around, but it started to be a Christian issue around uh, sometime in the second century. That And they, because Jesus is such, I mean, Jesus is so amazing. His story, his life, his words are so amazing that he becomes absorbed into virtually every religion since his death and resurrection. 
any religion, uh, I mean, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, you, men, you name it, they've got, they've got Jesus in there because he's so powerful. And so the Gnostics roll you know, parts of, of the, the Christian story in with their Gnostic ideas. Um, but there's a problem because Jesus is clearly Jewish. He clearly had a body. He clearly um, um, affirmed the role of the body because Jews, um, the God of the Jews, created the body. He created the world. He said it's very good. As we talked about in, in our class on, on creation, the, the world is very good. It's not bad as the, as the Greeks saw. Um, and so the Jesus of the Gnostics shares this secret knowledge that really, you know, all these Gnostic ideas are true and, 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 and the other stuff that, that you thought you knew from the, the Gospels is not true. So there's this secret knowledge, which is actually fairly ingenious. Um, if you think about, for example, this is, this is something that actually happened. What if you want to make a little bit of money and say you were a burgeoning playwright and you want to write a play and say this was actually written by Shakespeare and then, but I discovered it so I get the rights and then, you know, publish it out on the community. You would make a lot of money, right? And also your works, you know, would get performed all over the world. So somebody actually did this once upon a time. I think it was about 50 years ago. Uh, they, they hand wrote... Uh, and and they, they kind of scorched it with, with a lighter or something like this, and they pass it off as a play written by Shakespeare. Well, how do you pass off your play that was just discovered in the 1900s as a play by Shakespeare that nobody's heard of? How would you do that? You would lie. Specifically, you'd need to say this was hidden. You need to say... This was hidden, and, and let's invent a, a good story. Maybe it was lost. Maybe it was a secret gift to somebody. You know, for some reason, this was hidden, and now it's being revealed. So this is actually where we get the word apocrypha from, because there were so many There were so many of these books being written, and it, was so, it became such a common theme that this is secret knowledge that has been hidden, uh, and here's the reason why it was hidden, and now I'm revealing it to you, that the word apocrypha kind of attached to these Gospels. They're more commonly known as the Gnostic Gospels to di differentiate them from like the Gospel of Peter, that, which is a Christian Gospel. The Gnostic Gospels had these Gnostic ideas, but the apocrypha, it's this idea of a secret uh, knowledge. Um, and the way that... Uh, the, the story of the myth was usually um, uh, cached in the story was Jesus had a special disciple and he gave certain information to the special disciple that then this disciple passed it on to me. And so now I can share. And so the, first, the, um, the most important one is the Gospel of Thomas. So Do Thomas is the doubting disciple. He, he, he was always kind of skeptical, supposedly, of, of what Jesus was saying. And, and Jesus preferred him and shared the secret knowledge with him. So then... That explains why the, not, the Gospel of Thomas only pops up in the middle of the second century, a hundred years after Mark was written. Um, it's because this knowledge was hidden. It, it was a secret. And this is why these Gospels all are assigned by somebody's name, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, etc. They're all picking a disciple and saying that it's this disciple that has this secret knowledge. I would imagine their motivation was religious, that they genuinely believed, um, 
you know, in this Gnostic idea. Perhaps they had some sort of, you know, spiritual revelation. Uh, I, I don't have any problem with, with demons revealing themselves to people and, and motivating them to write books. I mean, I don't have a problem theologically with that. Um, it, I don't know. What, it, it, it's kind of a trap to ask too much what people's motivations are because I don't know. I don't know what their motivations are. Um, Where so are we? Yeah, so um, let me just catch up in my notes here. Jesus portrayed. Yeah, so let's, let's go through the notes in order or else I'm going to get lost. That was my problem last time. Um, so, in, uh, so we're on point B, point, uh, page 5. So the claim is that the Gnostic Gospels are the first and most ancient Gospels. So most of them are clearly established as late 2nd century, some 3rd and even 4th century documents. This kind of became a genre where people were doing this fairly often. So they were, they were later, and also they're clearly derivative. There's an already, as they're talking in the gospel, there's already an established, this is who you think Jesus is, this is what you think Jesus said, here's the secret knowledge. And so it's pretty clear that it comes after. And, and some, there are some people that would try and push the Gnostic Gospels, or specifically the Gospel of Thomas, into the first century. Um, and um, Craig Evans, in his book, explains why that's not really accepted by mainstream academia, although it is an idea that's out there at this point. Um, Dan Brown says these are the first and the most accurate Gospels, and uh, Constantine suppressed them because he wanted the canonical Gospels out. Um, these Gospels, you need to understand, usually are very short, and they contain just basic sayings of Jesus to explain this whole idea of ascension and, and Gnosticism. Um, so they don't even have very much information in them, but the information they have is usually changing the story from the Gospels to, to fit into this sort of a thing. Um, and so they're not understood as being more accurate um, by, by scholarship. Um, point three here, point III, top of page five, they were discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls is false. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls was a Jewish find. It had nothing to do with the New Testament. It had nothing to do with, certainly with the Gnostic Gospels. Um, it, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the Dead Sea Scroll community, the Essenes were, were annihilated at AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem, um, which is why there's a cap on we, the latest that the, the Dead Sea Scrolls could be is AD 70, which is why they're very useful for the Old Testament. We know that these are very ancient documents, um, but they contain no mention of, um, of Jesus or, or we wouldn't expect them to because these were Jewish and not Christian uh, scholars or um, people. Uh, the Neg Hammurabi discovery is actually where uh, the most important uh, discovery, I think I can spell this, Neg I might have that wrong, if so, Google will help you. I say that fairly often because it's how I live my life. Um, so in the mid, in the 50s or 60s somewhere, mid-1900s, uh, they discovered uh, a jar with a bunch of books in it at Neg Hamradi, and it had a lot of these Gnostic Gospels in it. Um, these had been mentioned throughout the early church. Uh, different church fathers um, said, well, you know, there, there is this book written by the Gnostics, and we reject it for this reason, or we, we understand Jesus differently for this reason. But they had kind of been lost to history. And then scraps of them started appearing here and there through archaeology. And then this Neg Hammurabi discovery kind of 
boom, we've got the full Gospel of Thomas and a, a bunch of other documents. So it was really interesting for understanding Gnosticism, second, second, second century Christianity, uh, but it certainly was not part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, the next claim by Dan Brown is that they, they portrayed Jesus as non-divine. This is, again, simply false. Um, if you want to understand the Gnosticism, it's good to think about... Um, storage almost full. Okay, that's fine. It's good to think about Buddhism. Um, Jesus is similar to the, to the Buddha um, in that he's saying, I am enlightened and I have knowledge to impart to you. I am God. You can all be gods. We can all ascend together. So this isn't, Jesus isn't doing the, the liberal modern thing of, look, I'm just a good teacher. Let's all be friends and, and build a better world together. That's not what the Gnostic Gospels are talking about, even if they were accurate, even if they were helpful to understanding Jesus. Um, he, he is clearly saying, I am God. Just what it means to be God is very different for a Gnostic than for a Jew. Um, the Gnostic Gospels taught a pagan religion which ele elevated the sacred feminine. I didn't get to this in the quotes, but Dan Brown talks a lot about um, the ancient pagan idea of um, that, that woman is divine because she can create life within her womb uh, and that uh, this was the, the center of religion for a lot of ancient cultures, which it was. Um, you read about that all through the Old Testament and how the Old Testament is um, very opposed to the worship of, um, of the reproductive cycle. You read all throughout the Old Testament and then they set up an Asherah pole in this, the Holy of Holies, and, and then a good king comes and cuts it down, and somebody else sets up an Asherah pole. Um, this is a penis, because they're worshipping sex, and they're worshipping the reproductive cycle. We're all adults, so that we can just tell you what that is. Um, and, and so this type of worship certainly was very common in Egypt, and in Canaan, and all throughout the ancient world. But you don't have to read very much of the Old Testament to get that Yahweh was a little bit bugged by this sort of worship. And it's certainly, again, what's the historical context of the New Testament? It's not Greek mythology. It's the Jewish scriptures. That's, that's what, that's the cradle of Jesus, is the Jewish scriptures, not Greek pagan mythology. Um, okay, so then we get to Jesus had a wife, supposedly. So, um, this is something that... Um, we could talk a fair bit about, but I just want to, to wrap it up fairly quickly because I do want to have time for Q&A. Um, the, um, the reason this gets some traction is because one of the Gnostic Gospels is from the Gospel of Mary. And it's mentioned as, uh, and so Mary becomes the secret disciple. We don't know if this is Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, or one of the other Marys. There's tons of Marys in, in the Bible, um, which, by the way, is... One of the evidences of, uh, of um, it being true, if it was fabricated, you would tend to have fewer repetitive names. But in the reality of, of life, uh, you tend to have names repeated. There's too many Judases, there's too many Marys, there's too many um, uh, Didymus, there, there's too many of other certain names. But, so we don't know exactly what, which Mary this was, but it's mentioned in the Gospel of Mary that Jesus loved Mary more than the other disciples. And then there's this text that um, there's important portions of it missing. Do you have the, the picture of a, um, a document there? No, no. Yes, this, no. Yeah, this, no, back, this one. So somewhere in this text, it's mentioned, uh, Jesus loved 
her more than the others. He used to kiss her on the blank, mm -hmm. and he used to something mm -hmm. with her. <laughs> and so we don't know what, what even it is. And so, of course, it opens up this whole world of speculation. Maybe this is Jesus' wife, and he used to kiss her on the lips all the time, and he used to, you know, they were married. Um, and, of course, for Da Vinci or for, um, you know, a conspiracy theory, this is great because you don't have to worry about any facts or any contextual uh, information. Um, this is highly unlikely because we're talking about Gnostics here. We're not talking, as Dan Brown asserts, about uh, this pagan religion which is worshipping sex. We're talking about Gnostics. And Gnostics hate the flesh. Similarly to Buddhists, um, missionaries working in, uh, in India and other places are surprised when, if there's a Buddhist monk and, and a, a woman... Uh, is on the bus, people will move to make sure the woman doesn't sit next to the Buddhist monk. Why? Because women are more fleshly than men, or at least they will introduce a carnal influence that might, influence, might uh, inhibit his ascension. So this is very common in Platonism. It's very common in Neoplatonism. Um, and so to assert that Jesus had a wife and that an integral part of his revelation of his secret knowledge was that he actually had this wife and, and they were kissing each other in front of the disciples and they had this great, wonderful, open, free, liberal, modern sexual relationship it is completely anachronistic and out of touch with what Gnosticism actually was. So my, my belief on the Gospel of Mary, again, this is a late document, it's in the second century, it doesn't even affect what you know the New Testament says, but what I believe is that Mary was uh, the special disciple and that Jesus was giving her a platonic kiss to say, you are my favorite disciple um, and I'm giving you this secret knowledge about how to ascend. It, it had nothing to do with anything sexual because that would be like, it would be like um, some lost document from Buddha talking about his wife that he had towards the end. You know, for a Buddhist, it would just like, what are you talking about Buddha had a wife? That, that's completely antithetical to our religion. It, it fits within pagan, you know, worship of sex and things like that, but it doesn't fit within Gnosticism, which is the context of the, the Gospel of Mary, as far as I know. Um, as well, uh, so there's, there's books that talk a lot about did Jesus have a wife because it was introduced by uh, the Da Vinci Code and stuff like that. Let me just read the verse that, to me, kind of uh, puts the nail in the coffin of this. Obviously, there's, there's no evidence, and so it just becomes an argument from silence, and people are like, well... Um, we can talk about this or that. The Da Vinci Code says the, the, um, the wedding at Cana was actually Jesus' wedding where he got married to uh, Mary Magdalene. Uh, and so, you know, Craig Evans says, well, Jesus showed up without his wife. He left without his wife. When they ran out of wine, he said, what, is that, what does that matter to me? It's not my concern. So it's just, it doesn't fit. Um, but far more importantly than that, again, 1 Corinthians is written way before, it's like, uh, did we say 20 years after the death of Jesus, death and resurrection of Jesus? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is saying, look, I've got all the rights that another apostle has, okay? And so he's trying to establish, look, this is what the apostles do, this is what I do. I have rights too. And he says, don't we have right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas... Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? So he's trying to establish, look, I have a right to get supported from a ministry, and I have a right to take along my family. Um, 
and from this, we, some people say that, Jesus, that Paul had a wife and family. Some people say he didn't, that he was just asserting rights he could potentially use. Um, but notice who he uses as examples of, of apostles with wives. He says, even the rest of the apostles. So he says the rest of the apostles have wives. And then he mentions especially the brothers of the Lord. So James was the brother of the Lord who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, who was a very important person to cite as, look, if James can have a wife, I can have a wife. Uh, and Cephas, so this is another word for Peter. So Peter is the rock that, you know, that Jesus established his church upon. He's you know, a leader. So if Peter can have a wife, I can have a wife too. And then he goes on, do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working. Why didn't he mention Jesus? Yeah. If Jesus had a wife, I would think he would have put that first. And so that, to me, just kind of puts the nail in the coffin. Again, there's no evidence. It's just a complete, you know, argument from silence. Um, but 1 Corinthians 9, 5, for me, is just like, if Jesus had had a wife, it would have been mentioned, especially there, likely all throughout the, the canonical Gospels. Okay, so let's talk briefly in conclusion then about the Council of Nicaea. Um, the claim is that the divinity of Christ was voted upon. Non-divine Gospels were rejected and burned. All the major elements of Christian practice were voted on, including the Sabbath, Christmas, Easter. Uh, and it's implied that the church was corrupted from the influence of Constantine at this time. The reality is that the Council of Nicaea was the first of seven ecumenical councils presided over by the Roman emperors and attempting to unify Christianity. It's true that the Easter was debated. Uh, the issue was when to celebrate it because the, the West celebrated the Gregorian calendar uh, following the solar calendar and the East uh, was the lunar calendar. This was actually a really big deal for them. Um, Christmas was not debated at this time. Sunday was not debated at this time. The divinity of Christ was not debated at this time. Um, the, in fact, the divinity of Christ was never debated with early Christians. It, it was, there was never a faction of Christians that was like, I think he's divine. And another faction that's like, no, he's not divine. Um, as we mentioned last week, all throughout Mark, for example, the, the first gospel, um, Jesus is the son of God who has authority on the earth to forgive sins, who calls himself I am, who, um, who accepts worship, who is going to, who seals a new covenant in his blood. Um, and in Galatians, very clearly Jesus is God. So this isn't an in-house debate. Christians are debating with Jews. Christians are debating with Greeks throughout the early church fathers um, who don't you know, that, that Jesus definitely is God, but it's not an in-house debate. At issue here is the Trinity because the Jewish context is Jesus, there is only one God. And then Jesus comes along and says, I and the Father are one. And then he prays to the Father. And then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so somehow you have one and you have three. And so how this all shook out and, and how to, to figure out how Jesus could be God and there could also be only one God, um, in some ways we're still wrestling with that. Um, but uh, formally, this was voted upon at the Council of Nicaea and at issue was the question of whether God is, of whether Jesus is the same essence or of similar essence, homo usion or homoi usion with God. So similar essence, uh, you might notice this is starting to look already a little bit like Neoplatonism, that we have God and then we have a lesser God and we have a lesser God and a lesser God. So this was really attractive to a lot of Greek thinkers. But the Council of Nicaea said, no, they're all, Jesus is the same, he's made of the same stuff. He's homoousion with God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are made of the same stuff. They're not of similar stuff. Jesus is not the first creation 
as, as uh, Arius thought and as um, contemporary Jehovah's Witnesses think. He is the same mm-hmm. essence. And I just want to show you a picture uh, that helps me this, um, this is go, go back to the, the young ladies there. Yeah. No, actually, go, go back one here. So this is uh, an icon of the Council of Nicaea, and we have here Arius that is being stomped underground <laughs> by, by everybody, um, because this Arius thought that, that Jesus was, um, was not made of the same stuff as God, and that he was a, a lesser creation. And so this was what the Council of Nicaea was all about. Uh, it had nothing to do with whether Jesus was divine, or the Gnostic Gospels were never discussed at any council. Um, the idea was Jesus is one, is made of the same stuff, but he's made of similar stuff. Actually, we'll just leave that, that picture off there that I'm going to show you. Um, so just sign the clock is wrong. It's actually 10.02 now. So are we out of time? Yeah. We are out of time. Shoot. <laughs> okay. I mean, um, yeah, we should actually go into intercessions. Okay. We, we need to have just a few minutes of discussion. Okay. What, what questions do you guys have? I think I'm done with... So who's documents from the uh, Council of Nicaea? Is yeah, tons. tons. Oh man, okay. there is so much from the Council of Nicaea. Well, well yeah. Okay. Uh, and I meant to, I, I printed for you this sheet here, which is a whole bunch of, I don't know why I didn't get to this in the notes, um, a whole bunch of non-Christian sources on Jesus. So Tacitus, Clinton Younger, uh, Josephus, and uh, so you can, and as well as uh, from later Jewish sources, so you can read that uh, later. Um, Josephus is quoted a lot. Yeah, because he, he wrote on the time period and he was focused on what happened in Palestine at the time. So he's really important. So it's mentioned in there that there were um, later Christians inserted things into Josephus that he likely didn't say that Jesus was the Son of God, that uh, he worked, that, yeah, that, that he was the Son of God. Um, and so that led to a period where they rejected all of Josephus because it had been corrupted. And contemporary, Christian, contemporary scholars would say, okay, we can take out those insertions because Josephus was a Jew and he never said that he converted to Christianity. Uh, so we can take out those insertions but still accept the, the essence of, you know, Jesus was a historical figure that was crucified and founded the Christian religion. Um, so there's information on that in here. Um, what else have I... Are there any other understanding type questions or um, anything that we can briefly mention in conclusion here? I would imagine the whole issue on the, um, the, the debate between uh, similar to God and like God would be a whole class in itself. If oh, not yeah. More, yeah. Not and that's what I was trying to do. I was starting to do with that picture, but we definitely don't have time to go into that. But um, interestingly, I just had a debate with. Um, a Muslim online about who you know, Jesus actually is in the Trinity. The Trinity is really hard to defend from the Bible. The con- because the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. The concept is, is hard to grasp. What is not hard to defend is that Jesus is God. So that's what the early church was stuck with. Jesus is God. There is only one God. How do we... And so the, the Trinity is like a solution to a conundrum that the church wrestled with for hundreds of years. Um... And that's why it's genius. That's why it's beautiful. One being with three persons. So it's, it's not saying three of one thing, one of one thing. It's three of one thing, one of something else. One being three persons. 
so this is what was debated, and, and it wasn't the end of the debate by any means. The debate stretched on to the 5th, 6th century. How, what exactly the Trinity means? Because once you say, okay, one being three persons, then other issues arise. How can Jesus worship God? How can, uh, do they, do they share thoughts? Is, you know, how, so there's all these things that need to be developed. And again, it could, oh, I took a whole seminary course on it, and I'm still confused about some issues. Um, very interesting field of study. But what is, again, what needs to be emphasized is that the church always worshiped Jesus as God. That was never a debate. The debate was, how does that make sense if there's only one God? And the solution was, he is one being in three essences. You know what, I'm going to put that picture up. Put the picture of the young ladies up there. Um, this is my... Here you have, these are twins down the state. They're Siamese twins. They have one body and two heads. Um, very remarkable case. They are viable twins. They're, they're teenagers now, young ladies. And um, they have one being. They share one essence, one body. And yet they are two persons. So that for me... Anytime that you make a picture of God, it's, it kind of feels wrong. Uh, and, and I need to hasten to say this only illustrates one small aspect of the Trinity, which is the threeness and the oneness. Um, but that for me is a mental hook of how something can be three, three persons in one being. Um, so that's helpful to me. I, I hope uh, it's helpful to you and not too um, irreverent. I don't know. Okay, we better close now. Um, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the time that we've had this class, and I just pray that you would bless us as we go from here, and I pray that um, the material that we've learned in this class would be useful to you and useful to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much.